Alright, we're going to come back together now uh, and read God's Word. You can find today's uh, reading on page 1128 if you have one of our blue Bibles. And we're reading from Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through to 20. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all written under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. All right. Now, let me pray. Welcome if I haven't met you, if I missed you at the door. It's great to be with you. Once again, like last week, pretty serious passage, but we like the serious heavy passages because it takes us somewhere fantastic. And so that's what we're going to do uh, today. Let me pray and then we'll get straight into it. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for your word. Um, And as we look at it today and see the depths of um, our plight, humble us so we can see Jesus even more clearly. Amen. Now, what we're doing today is we're looking at not just chapter 3, verse 9 to 20, which is where we're going to spend most of our time. We're kind of concluding our whole argument from last week from chapter 1, verse 18. The whole idea that humanity has a problem with God. And so our series on the Gospel of Jesus, we're seeing that today it's the Gospel that everyone needs. It's the Gospel that everyone needs. And so, how do we know this? Well, this is where the conclusion of this argument goes. And it's a pretty black and white kind of message today. It's, you see there, black and white, there are many things in life that we see as black and white. Have you got anything in your life on the top of your head that you can think is just black and white? That is how it is. It's either this or that. It might be controversial for others, but do you have anything that you think is black and white? That is definitely not black or white in my mind. Thank you, Luke. Off to a bad start. Um, sometimes it's controversial what's black and white, isn't it? You know, you're either a Crows fan or a Port fan to keep the same thing going. Well, you should only be a Port fan as far as I'm concerned. So, and I know that maybe divide many of you, possibly more than half. But there's more serious things that are black and white. The earth is round. That's what we've discovered now, right? It's black and white. The earth is round. This passage today is black and white. Humanity 
or bad. We'll elaborate on what that means. God is righteous. There's a problem. So I don't know where you are with God. I don't know whether you're here for the first time today and you wanted to just check in what Christians think about uh, God and Jesus and you think, well, this is, just, this is why I don't listen because they're always so negative. Well, I'd love you to hang on with us today and see how understanding humanity helps us see how great Jesus is. And that's where the message takes us. And so it's worth us considering what all the scriptures say and especially when it's such a big argument as Romans chapter 1 all the way to 3 uh, verse 20 is. So if you've got an outline there, um, you'll see that the first point I want us to think about is that there's a damning conclusion. You see there? The damning conclusion is what shall we conclude? The whole of the argument that's happened, do we have any advantage? That is, Paul's saying, could the Jews possibly have an advantage over everyone else? Because, well, they've got, you know, God made a people and Jesus comes out of them. So maybe they've got an advantage that what we saw last week, that the wrath of God is being revealed, maybe in some way, because we're part of God's, uh, God's family, we, we get out of it. What shall we conclude? Do we have any advantage? Well, it's what shall we conclude? And you may realise that we actually weren't able um, in this series this time to go into the depths of 1, 8, all the way through to uh, 2, all the way through to here. We, we kind of missed a bit. We've got to look at them in um, the community groups, those of you who go to community groups. But what he's concluding is, after declaring all are facing the wrath of God and that the Gentiles live that way, he kind of starts off in chapter 2, if I just kind of run through a little summary for you, he kind of starts off by saying, well, the Jews, you have no excuse. In chapter 2, verse 1, you do the same things, he says. So don't think you're going to escape God's judgment. Everyone's in the same boat. You're storing up wrath for yourselves, he even says uh, in chapter 2, verse 5. It's a very serious situation. God is not showing favouritism when it comes to what humanity's heart is like before him. And so one of the biggest issues for Christians in the early church, and if you read any of the New Testament letters, you find there's this thing about circumcision which seems to be such a big deal, like in Galatians and other places. And that's because when God established his people, that was the mark that you belonged and that you followed the law. And so now that we've got Christians uh, following the fulfilment of Israel, do they do that? Do they not do that? If you've got it, does that mean you're okay? And his point is, no, no, no. The being circumcised is an outward expression, but what's going on inward, inwardly is a problem. And so there's something different happening. So in chapter 2, verse 29... He says, a new circumcision is happening. Circumcision of the heart by the Spirit is where all of the, the circumcision of the, of, the, of the law and of the people belonging to Israel was focusing in on. That there's a new way that fulfills it. And so, you're in the same boat. Everyone has the same problem. And then in chapter... Chapter 3, before we get to the bit we're looking at today, this is the kind of little excursus where he says, well then what's the point of it all? Why bother being a Jew? And he says, no, 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 much in every way. There's great advantage in, in, in being a Jew because God has given you the way that everyone is going to come to a relationship with me. It's through Israel, God actually makes everyone right. It was Jesus the ultimate Israelite. 
the one who comes and gives us life and the words of God that come from them is how we have life. But let's be reminded, just because you're a Jew and maybe you've come to follow Jesus and you've got a, a, a Christian Jew, you've got the same problem because in chapters, uh, verse 17 and following, in 21 he says, you teach but you don't follow what you teach. You preach but you steal. You say people shouldn't commit adultery but you commit adultery. And his point is, as he goes on, is that we've got the same problem. And then you get to our argument. And it's no surprise then that we see that is what he's talking about today. Have a look at uh, verse 9 there. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. He emphasises it. He says, For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. He's saying, what I've just kind of quickly overviewed for you in those chapters and what we established last week, you can't say you've got a, you've got a way out of it because we're all under the power of sin. How does that make you feel? Do you think that's true? If you're not a follower of Jesus, you may be thinking, well, that's just too extreme. Sure, there's bad things that happen, but that's just too extreme. Let's consider it for a moment. It, is, it actually says being under, under sin. What's that mean? It's not just that people do a bad thing. It means that sin, you're kind of under it. Everyone is under sin. No one is outside of it in any way. We're kind of consumed by it, if you like. If we were to go into the depths of all the details in which the ways that Paul just in this letter talks about sin, we'd find out in chapter 5, verse 21, he talks about sin reigns. In uh, chapter 6, verse 6, it's enslaving people who are under it. In, uh, in verse 12, it kind of rules. In 14, it has some kind of lordship. Uh, in verses 16, 17 and 20, people are slaves to sin. In verses 18 to 22, the opposite, people are freed from that slavery. Sin is a power that's ruling over all people and it's played out, played out in how we kind of live it out ever since that first sin. It is all-consuming. Society is all-consumed by a rejection of God. So much so that we're incapable of following the law, God's ways or even choosing God. I love the way um, I was um, reading a commentary to help me think this through and I just love this imagery in um, a shrine of the commentators said, sin has wrapped its tentacles so tightly around human beings they could not keep the law. I've always had this imagery of octopus kind of wrapping itself around me and then I'm just stuck. I don't know why, I've just always thought that so that's probably why I like that imagery. Because when you're wrapped up or, or you, you can't do anything, when, you, when you've got tentacles wrapped all around you, you're stuck. If you've got a rope wrapped around you, 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 you're constrained. You can't do anything unless it's loosened. We're totally wrapped up by the tentacles of sin. Another simple way of saying it is, sin taints everything. Our inability to be right before God is the ultimate problem. That's the picture 
before us. Then what happens in this passage that we've got in in verses 10 to 12, we have a string of um, uh, passages highlighted from the Old Testament. If you see on the screen there, if you can see it, or if you've got a Bible in front of you, verses 10 to 18, you can see there's a whole bunch of ways that he tries to prove his point. But if we go to the next slide, what we actually see is that what Paul has uh, done is he's ripped out all these passages, mostly from the Psalms and a bit from Isaiah and Ecclesiastes, and all of these uh, verses are kind of pulled out of the Old Testament and said, the Jews think that they've got it right and they're right with God, but actually, no, no one is righteous. When Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 say, no one understands, no one is righteous, Paul is putting this into his argument now and saying, what was said then, let's be clear, it means that you cannot in any way be right with God. And this string of verses quoted from the Old Testament, he kind of highlights for us in different ways. So if we go to the next slide, you'll see how it breaks down. Um, uh, Hopefully uh, you can see that, or some of you can see it, but you've got, first of all, verse 10, no one is righteous, and then you've got 11 and 12, the, the turning away, then you've got this thing about the lips and the mouth and speech, and then you've got physical actions that kind of are pear-shaped and then a summary. And they all highlight the one point. You see, verse 10, no one is righteous. And you've got the righteousness of God. You've got this comparison that is a big problem. Five times in verses 10 to 12, the idea of everyone having this problem is highlighted. Isn't that kind of making the point in a big way? No one is righteous. There is no one who understands, all have turned away, no one who does good, not even one. You see, no one who seeks God, all have turned away. The problem with humanity is we're constantly seeking after other gods. As the Old Testament points out to to us, as we see the Israelites constantly have this problem, as we saw last week that the way of the world is to worship other things other than God. That is turning away from God when God wants us to turn to Him. It's such a big problem that He says no one does good. Now, is that true? Has anything ever been done that's good? What could He possibly mean? Surely there has been good done. Another way of saying, have you ever said, oh, they're a really good person, I really like that, that guy. Oh, she's really nice, I really I like her, they're really good people. You've all said that, haven't you, at one point. You've said that someone is good and you like them. Oh, I've done it, I do. What do we mean by that? Well, it could mean all sorts of things, I can't read your mind, but I think generally, when we say that, we're saying, this is someone that I can get along with because there's something about them that I appreciate, that I like. And so I call it good. If I didn't think Jen was good in that sense, that I appreciated her and liked her, I probably all those years ago wouldn't have thought about marrying her. But I did. So I did marry her. <laughs> See, we, we, we maybe get distorted on what good is because we just kind of use it in our vernacular all the time of, oh, they're a good person, they're a good person. And now we're hearing no one is good. What is he saying? He's saying that... Goodness compared to God, the ability to do what God wants, 
We can't. We're that tainted. We're not righteous. Sin has its tentacles so much around us. Even when we do good, it's corrupted. We have the capacity to do great good. Why do you think that is? Well, if we jump back to Genesis chapter 1 and we find out how, uh, what, uh, what God thought of us when he made us, we'd find we're made in the image of God. So anyone, whether they actually follow God or not, the capacity to do good, even with evil motives or ambivalent motives or, or whatever, or, or good motives in their mind, you have that capacity because we're made in the image of God. It's just we've let sin shatter that image. So badly, corrupted so poorly, we cannot be in a relationship with a righteous God because we are unrighteous, turned away from Him. So we're not good. Could it be put any stronger? Could it be any more black and white? That no one can say, when I stand before God, I'm good enough on my own terms. Could you say that? Even if you are the, the goodest, as I was going to say, the best person in the room, right? You think you're the best person in the room, well then no longer are you the best because pride has got you. But let's just say you are the best person in this room compared to everyone else. But if Jesus rocked up and stood here, other than the fact that we'd be blown away by his glory and all those kind of things, if he was to say to you, "Uh, the first person who is all right with me on their own terms, could you please come and stand up? Could you do it? We know we couldn't on our own terms. Maybe the most brash and bold and arrogant of us who have turned away from God would think that they can in arrogant defiance but I suspect they'd be in for a great shock. But it's not just this overarching, really black and white view he wants to point out. You see there that speech is a great example. And if you think in any depth about the problems of uh, the world, spend some time analysing our speech, the way we talk to each other, the language that we use, the, the bitterness that's employed... The, the aggressive tones that we use, the way that we gossip, we slander, it's, we have a vile way of speaking. Just, actually, it's really unedifying, don't do it. But if you went through any kind of social media comment section, what do you find? The heart of humanity is what you find. And so these beautiful, the illustrations are here for me in this verse, aren't they? Their throats are open graves. Y- y- your mouth sends you to your death. Tongues practice deceit. That first lie of the serpent, we've just followed him. The poison of vipers is on their lips. That one disturbs me because you know my fear of snakes, right? And that just highlights for me how bad it is. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. It's vivid imagery to point to, yeah, actually, once I start thinking about my own way I talk, the times when I get it wrong the way I make other people feel and the way I speak. And then I look beyond myself and those who don't have any filters and we see the heart coming out. But it doesn't just stay in the heart, does it? It doesn't just stay there because the way we live, what we do, has great consequences. Verse 15 to 17, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. 
Injury is caused by humanity in society. Their feet are swift to shed blood. We are a, a, a race, we are a people who keep on killing each other. And it just is all around when we open our eyes to it. The way of peace we do not know. We cry out for it all the time, don't we? We have a problem in Australia, maybe less and less, but we have the facade on one level that we do have peace. We're meeting here easily. We get to go on with our lives in harmony on one level. But it is a facade and it could even not be like that all the time in Australia. We express our sinfulness in, destru- in destructive ways in society. It was so great uh, having uh, Roger share with us today and being able to chat to them after. And I couldn't endorse more to you to think beyond ourselves and our desire for mission here. It's good and healthy for us to think beyond ourselves, but why do we need to do that in the first place in, in the context of need? Because how many million of those... How many in poverty was it, Roger? Do you have a top of you? 385 million. Even if that was an overestimation by, you know, 70%, the problem is still clear, isn't it? It is... I can't get my head around that concept. Why is that the case? That should not be the case. Because as a humanity, we have a massive problem and that's how it's expressed. But the problem is we turn from God. And so it's great for us to want to buck that trend as followers of Jesus and care for people. But we shed blood. And so this very black and white argument, but you need to decide whether you think it's true or not, of the world and of yourself, gets kind of concluded at the bottom. It's kind of like going back to verse 10, no one is righteous, but it gives us this kind of root cause of it all. Look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The root cause is that people don't want to see God and think, well, I should follow him. No want to see that the God that we should follow is full of love and grace and mercy, but we just want to turn from him. There's no fear of him. It's a theological problem we have that causes society's destruction. It's a root cause. Just like you do it uh, over to our house at the moment, you'll find a whole lot of healthy and lovely functioning uh, plants who are really growing. There's a whole bunch of little um, indigenous natives that we bought yesterday and they're fantastic they're going to hopefully grow beautifully but if you look carefully as well you'll see a lot of dead ones as well around our house what's the cause of their problem the root is dead what's the cause of the healthy plants their roots are giving life to that plant our problem our roots are dead because we don't fear god that we're not righteous And so, the argument has been expressed in great detail. Where do you, do you think that's right? Because I think what we're seeing is, 
A point B there, total depravity is the right. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, total depravity, but now you have. Total depravity is the idea that everyone is under sin, which is how uh, we've already started to talk about it. Total depravity means no part of life is affected by sin. Our capacity to do good is still there because we made the image of God, but in every part we are stained by it. There is no part of life that avoids sin. We are unable to choose God on our own. That is how bad it is. We're a slave to sin. You can't be a slave to something and then have the freedom to do something else. It doesn't work that way. Jesus himself says... Uh, in, in John's Gospel, the problem is a slavery to sin and that your father's the devil. He goes pretty hard. And so, we need to consider, is that what we think? But before we get to the end, before we get to the end and before we wrestle with this idea even further... Paul has this little point, well, well, maybe, maybe what we see on the next slide there, that maybe the Jews thought, well, but yeah, yeah, I hear all of that, but it's not that bad for us. Don't forget, we have the law. God gave us the law. He came, he gave us a people. We have this way. We're okay. We've got this whole system in place. It'll be fine for us. It's not that bad. And he finishes the argument by saying, it's not going to help you. Have a look at verse uh, 19 to 20. On the screen. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. When God says, this is how you should live and you should do this perfectly, if you don't do it perfectly, what do you realise Ah, I haven't done what God wanted. It's clear. (laughs) The whole system that God put into place for his people actually included in it that you are going to get it wrong. The whole sacrificial system from the beginning was pointing to the fact you have a problem, you can't follow it. There's much more to be said there, but at this point we just move on from that because we really want to get to the but in verse 21. This is probably the most important little transition word in in the whole of the Bible. The most important but in the whole Bible, chapter 3, verse 21 of Romans, because you have such a big statement about how awful our situation is. And then what do you have? A massive change when you get to God. And what he has done. Have a look. Briefly, at verse 21, this is where we're going to spend all of next week. It's so good, these little, these few verses. But let's just see it here. But now, a righteous, uh, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This section is so crucial that next week, I'm really looking forward to next week, of pulling apart 
uh, verses 21 to 27, and us wrestling with, how does Jesus save us? What does he actually do? This word atonement that I kind of have in my head, if I'm, if I'm a Christian, I kind of know it, but what does it really mean? How does it work? How is God's wrath appeased? Is it appeased? What's going on? This, these uh, verses are so packed with so many great things for us to truly need to understand that we're going to spend all our time next week. It'll be a great week um, to bring someone along to, to share with them. This is how you uh, get in a right relationship with Jesus. But I wanted to show us it here today to contrast it with the problem that we've been establishing. Because what these verses say, just here, just this little bit, is that as we've established, we've all got a problem before God. None of us can say, there's God's glory and I'm just going to come over here with all my glory and it's good enough. I can stay here with God. We've fallen short of that glory and that's not acceptable to God. But he wants us to be acceptable to him. And so how is that going to work? It's going to be through what Jesus does on the cross, which we'll look at in great depth next week. His death for us in our place makes us righteous. God declares us to be righteous. That is bizarre when we look at the depths of what we are like. And yet, through what Jesus has done, God sees you and I, if you trust in Jesus, that's where it says through faith, as if we are righteous. That's what he declares about you. How extraordinary is that state you are in? That God says, you can be with me. That right now, we are in a good relationship and this relationship will even get better the other side uh, of Jesus' return when you're with me in all glory, in all perfection forever. When we see our state before him. So hopefully, you can see today that if you're wondering why Christians keep on talking about sin, it's not because you need to do good to earn God's favour or it's because we're all about guilt or it's all because... It's because we have a problem and the solution is so much better than we could possibly imagine if we truly look at the problem and acknowledge it and come to God and say, thank you for saving me from that. Anyone here today can see if that's your problem and you want to trust in Jesus, he has redeemed you, pulled you out of your slavery to sin. The power of sin is what that redemption is about, pulling you out of that. This idea of being under sin is no more because he has ripped you out of it. But justified freely, not because it didn't cost anything, it didn't cost you anything. It cost Jesus everything. Today I want to challenge you to consider do you need to trust in Jesus? And if you're not sure, come back next week as we see we focus on Jesus and what he's done. But let me finish today with just three kind of reflections on the depths of our sin. First of all, I want you to truly understand what total depravity is. And if you're wrestling with sin and the impacts of it, I'd love you to talk to me about it and ask about it. So I think in, in Christianity, 
This is often where Christianity gets most mixed up, when it gets mixed up. Not with understanding how we're saved so much, but because we don't think the problem's as bad, then then we don't need as good as the solution that is in Jesus. That if we don't think we're that bad, all of a sudden, we can do good to earn our favour with God. But quite simply, understanding our sin, our total depravity, is just to see everyone is under the power of sin. All have sinned. No one is righteous. And the problem, thirdly, the problem is so bad, it affects every part of life. And fourthly, we cannot get to God because of it on our own self and merits. That is what it means to truly and rightly see the depths of sin. And it's good to see that because the more we understand ourselves as a follower of Jesus, the more we know how we can seek to be more like him and what he saved us from. And that is my second point. Chapter 1, verses 18 and 320, and the point that it makes is vital for mission. We started Grow because we want people to love Jesus. If we avoid the problem, how can people see the need? If we just say, just love, how can we see how great that love is of God? It's a black and white problem. We need to see that reality. And thirdly, in these last two points, we're going to talk a little bit in our um, Sharing Jesus uh, story section uh, with Jen a bit later. You are not any more special to anyone else. Your status is no different to anyone else before God. See, one of the the problems we have is that we can think, we can compare ourselves. What Romans 3, verse 10 to 20 does is say, well, before God there's no comparison to be made. All have sinned and fallen short. I want to encourage you today to spend some time humbly seeing the depths of humanity's problem so we can see the magnitude of his glory in saving us.